0: A Podcast One production.
1: On the evening of November 16, 2005, John Aloisi walked
2: towards the penalty spot with a nation's hopes resting on his shoulders. All I could hear were sort of whispers in the crowd. Is this it? Are we going? If he scores this, it was it was that sort of surreal moment. This was a moment many people thought would end in failure again. I'm thinking derail. Everyone's thinking derail
0: because it's happened too many times before. <laughs> this is a story of hardship and sacrifice.
3: Oh, mate, you know how many phone calls I had? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum and saying that I want to come home, like actually crying.
4: It's a story of countless lost opportunities.
5: Oh it was um oof, that's probably gonna hurt for a very very long time. This is the story of one kick. One
1: moment.
4: Here's Aloisi for a place in the you World Cup. It. It's
1: football fever in
3: America football corner qui eu et c'est le doublé The World
4: Cup
6: is a Celebration of humanity. That's the voice of Adam Peacock, host of footy at Fox Sports, author of a wonderful book about the Socceroos called That Night and Footy Die Hard. But the overriding sense you get when you go there is that, wow,
0: you're at the centre of this event for four weeks, which essentially stops the world. And certainly every time there's a match, two specific parts of the world stop and drop everything and it becomes everything to those people. And it's just a wonderful way to to celebrate um, the world's biggest sport in one big hit. We were kind of like the, the kids who were always locked outside and, and looking through the window wishing we were inside in the
6: warmth of uh, participating in a World Cup. To truly get the full picture of the story you're about to be told, you need a history lesson. And this one goes way back all the way to 1965 when the Socceroos first attempted to qualify for the World Cup. Of the four countries in the Asia-Oceania qualifying group, South Korea withdrew, and South Africa, well, they were banned. Beauty, the Aussie lads would only have to knock off North Korea in a two-legged tie played in Cambodia, and it was off to the 66th World Cup in England. The full-time North Koreans were coming off nearly 35 internationals in the previous three years. The Socceroos, well, our boys hadn't played a full-spec international in nearly seven years. Soccero's Jeff Slate takes up the story.
3: We went to Cairns in in northern Queensland because it was considered to be a similar climate to that of Cambodia. And we played two friendly games, one against a northern Queensland amateur select team, where we managed to beat 17-0, and one against a team from Ingham, where we managed to beat 26-0. So we went off to play against North Korea feeling pretty good. Sadly, the old
6: North Koreans brought a bit more to the table than Ingham. They were army guys. They were
3: tougher than than we were and I'm glad we were only playing them at football. They beat us 6-1 and and the second game we lost 3-1.
6: Four years later, with Mexico 1970 beckoning, the Socceroos took care of South Korea, Japan and Rhodesia, setting up a two-match series with Israel. The winner off to Mexico. Bueno. That goal gave Israel the first leg at home. They then drew with the Socceroos in Sydney.
1: Inside the final three minutes, Watkins traps the ball and side-puts a shot to score the equaliser, but Australia fails to add to their tally, and it's a one-all draw. Israel is to go to Mexico in quest of soccer's
4: greatest prize, the World Cup. I'm more Aussie now than they set for the lingle. Um I mean, I've been here now for 29, 39, 46 years. First in it? OK, finally, this is where things take a bit of a turn for the better for the Socceroos with blokes like Peter Ollerton. Uh, I came across, offered a contract for two years uh, with a club called Ringwood Wilhelmina in uh, Victoria. Um, At that time, I wasn't too sure where Victoria was. Um, I knew where Australia was, but didn't know where Victoria was. Pete, a 19-year-old
6: from Preston in England, was about to get a rude shock about the round ball code in
4: Australia. When I came to Australia, when I first arrived, uh, this gentleman, Fred Hutchinson, picked me up from the airport and said, we're actually playing our game tomorrow, and it's being played at Wembley Park. And of course, coming from England, Wembley Stadium, I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, uh, gee, I better be right for this. He said, now, I know you've got, um, you've traveled a long way and you may have jet lag. And I said to him, well, what's jet lag? Well, and he said, because I'd never been on an airplane before. And uh, he said, look, you just relax. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Anyway, the next day. And in our game, especially overseas, uh, it's very professional. And we used to dress up, shirt and tie uh, suit to go to the game professionally. Mm. And he, the guy said, look, I'll pick you up about, you know, one o'clock, kickoff's three o'clock. And I thought to myself, well, Wembley Park, it would have to be, you know, a nice stadium here. It's cut long story short, from Croydon to Box Hill took about 15, 20 minutes. And as we're driving in the back of the car, I'm looking for this stadium. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> It's just—it's like a paddock, flat as a tag, and it was just like a tin shed. Right. And when I got into the ground, I've got my bag and, and suit and shirt and tie, and these guys started drifting in with shorts and thongs and <laughs> T-shirts, and I've gone to myself, what have, I, what have I done here?
6: Within no time, Pete was playing for Victoria against... Well, you're not going to believe who he
1: was playing against. Johnson, is running,
4: Uh, Santos of Brazil came across on tour from Brazil and Pelé was the captain. So you played against Pelé? So I played against Pelé at at Olympic Park. (laughs) I think there was 30,000, 40,000. What was Pelé like? Pelé was a lovely man, a fantastic uh, player. Uh, I was very fortunate enough that after the game we went back to, uh, I think then days it could have been the Park Royal or something (laughs) like that. And uh, fortunate enough, I think I grabbed his shorts and his tie-ups and anything else I could grab from him. And I still think I have them somewhere or my son has somewhere and um, spoke to him. His English wasn't fantastic, uh, but as the night got on and we had a couple of drinks, he opened up a little bit and I found him to be a, a really, really, truly beautiful man. While Pete was beginning to make a name for himself, the Socceroos were
6: fighting to qualify for the 1974 World Cup finals to be played in West Germany. This time, a two-legged tie versus South Korea would decide the fate of the green and gold.
1: Tremendous oh. effort there by Australia get the ball into goal. Yes. yes!
6: After two matches, the teams couldn't be separated. So on November the 13th, 1973, a third match was played in Hong Kong. This one. Winner takes all.
1: Wilson's gone up in the middle. There's Peter Wilson, he's coming down in his direction,
3: headed to Rooney. A shot coming in. Oh, a great goal! Oh, it was the tie, wasn't it?
4: But that goal, you know, goes down in Fort Law as far as, uh, as if you know Australian players, the law always remember that goal because that was a goal that got into Australia to uh, the World Cup in 74. A lot of people think oh, Alawissi's goal, the penalty, was the first time Australia had ever qualified, but uh, if you look back in history, it wasn't. It's now 1974,
6: and Pete has been selected to debut for the Socceroos against Uruguay in a couple of friendlies
4: in Sydney and Melbourne.
6: Were you Australian, Pete,
4: or not? I'm not 100% sure. I think I was. <laughs> I, as I said to you before, I, I, I wasn't 100%. I can't really go back and reflect on going to a, a service or whatever you do to get your natural naturalisation Mm, different times obviously nevertheless
6: in the second leg of the friendlies at the SCG Pete scored an absolute corker I am talking a genuine super goal
4: I actually picked the ball up in just outside our penalty spot and ran all the full length of the ground and took it round the keeper and put it back in the back of the net which made it 2-0. Now
1: you're going to see one of the most amazing goals you've seen in international. There goes Ollerton away. There's the Uruguayan goalkeeper in the centre circle. And Ollerton can hardly (laughs) believe his luck as he runs
4: the whole length of the field. And basically, I think, cemented a spot for me to be in that 24 to travel to the uh, 74
1: World Cup. Good evening. Well tomorrow, as if you didn't know, is the start of the 1974 World Cup. They say that the potential viewing audience around the world will be between 400 and 600 million people per game, with a from Germany being beamed to 91 countries. Truly a worldwide festival.
4: What was the World Cup like as a footballer? World Cup was fantastic. It's just something you can't imagine. Driving round with an Australian bus, with Australian supporters outside and people through all of Germany waving to you and banners and atmosphere and 24 hours TV and so on so on it's just something you you really dream about and think gee, I'd love to one day possibly play in the World Cup wouldn't that be nice or play in an FA Cup final or something like that And it was a dream and as many times now I'm 66 now and I think to myself did it really happen but I'm very fortunate that I've got memory, Billy, around the house, and people I meet sometimes in the street, or people I haven't seen for long times, remind me, and it's uh, fantastic memories. The
6: 74 Socceroos were only part-timers at best. Team captain Peter Wilson was a car salesman. The squad also included truck drivers, a storeman,
4: and some tradies. Well, I can remember driving into the stadium to play West Germany. And they were, it was probably an hour and a half to two hours before the game started, and they were already on the training track doing sprints. And as we drove past, I said, one of my teammates, I said, have a look at these guys here. I said, they're, they're already uh, into it, and we're sat on the bus singing a song, uh, you know, uh, on the way to the game. I said, it, 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 just a completely different level. But uh, we went onto the ground and we got beat 3-0 with uh, West Germany who went on to win the World Cup that year. So to be beaten 3-0 by them was a great achievement. The Socceroos also lost to East
6: Germany and drew with Chile. But the boys return home to a newfound respect.
4: I think it really didn't Really, it is till we, uh, you know, came back in into Australia, where obviously the press were there and what like they'd never been before. Uh, people still couldn't believe that we'd qualified, and um, we just made the most of it. I think we actually cut a record, a pop song about Australia, and I think it's still around these days. I think I had one once, but I can't remember. Where it's where it is now, but we did a song. Yes. What's it all about, Pete? Uh, we're in us. I can't really remember. Come now, on, try for I me. I can't
6: think of it. But <laughs> do you want to hear the song? Yeah, of course you do. It was called Soccer It To 'Em, We are the Aussies, and we call the Sockaroos. And if
3: you are an Aussie, then you don't going to lose. You can't tell us we're
5: beat
3: because we do
6: those boys could play footy so after 74 you're on the plane home thinking well I'll be at another World Cup the soccerers will be at the next World Cup
4: definitely um, I thought it was a great opportunity for Australia and the country to kick on maybe invest some money into the game and um hopefully improve the standards. There was then this expectation
0: in Australian football that it's just going to happen every time now and and we'll just get to every World Cup
6: and uh, we'll be right and the game will grow that way. It didn't quite work out like that. So, this is when our Socceroos history lesson becomes a painful one. It's full of near misses,
4: disasters, stuff-ups and heartbreak. And lots of it. So I went to the next level and went for the 78 World Cup. Now we we finished up um, losing in Iran in front of 100,000 people 1-0 and uh, as the knockout match as the knockout match uh, which put us out the qualifiers
1: so 1978
0: we missed 1981 82 was one of those ones which we just stuffed up we played new zealand in a in a game at the scg that they needed to win they bottled it new zealand beat us they made spain 1982 we missed out it's
3: New Zealand 2 0.
0: 1985, in order to qualify for Mexico 86 against Scotland, we wanted to play, we had to play home and away to beat Scotland, and they had Alex Ferguson actually as their their boss um, as well. And they had some superb players in their midst at that time. Kenny Dalgleese played the first leg over there in Scotland. Tonight
6: at Handon Park, we're not looking for saves but goals as Scotland aim to build a big lead in their World Cup playoff with Australia. A big Scotland lead in the first leg of their playoff against an Australian side unbeaten in six World Cup games so far, having conceded just two goals.
0: One way that Australian football decided to stuff things up was that um, we had the second leg at home. We had the advantage of having the second leg at home. And instead of coming out of Scotland in the middle of November, December and playing in a a warm climb and playing on a difficult pitch, Frank Arrick, the coach of the time, actually wanted the game to be played in Darwin on a cow paddock at three o'clock in the afternoon. But the Australian Soccer Federation for reasons unbeknownst to the players at the very least they wanted to play up there in darwin as well john Cosmenta tells the story that uh, no they decided to go where the comfy corporate suites were and make it easy for for the scots they played it on a on a cold night it was 10 degrees in melbourne at olympic park on a beautiful surface so the the advantage was taken away the the advantage that you can get right or otherwise who cares you you've got that at your disposal they didn't use it so they missed out on that <laughs> 89. a match we should have won against Israel at the Sydney Football Stadium, stuffed that up. Trouble
3: here. Ali Ohana can put this one away, and he will. The Israelis are leading. The 40,000 here is going to be stunned.
6: OK, OK, OK. Enough disasters for a while. In the words of Aussie songwriter Paul Kelly, in the
2: hour of greater slaughter, the great avenger... Is being born. My dad was born in Italy. Right. His uh, his dad came over, I'm pretty sure, in the, the 50s, uh, four years before my old man and the rest of the family came out um, to yeah, just make enough money to, to bring him out. And, so he wouldn't uh, have seen his kids in four years? Yeah, four years. That's
6: the voice of John Aloisi. Born in Adelaide, Australia, in February 1976. Do you remember your first competitive game under under what? What would you have been? Oh, well, I would
2: have been, uh, I reckon it was, I would have been five, and I'm not sure if it was under sevens, because I don't think they had under fives back then. Right. Um, but I remember I was more of a defender when I started playing, um, and then slowly, slowly I moved up the pitch.
6: Howie. Hey, Tane, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Also born in Adelaide. Tony Vidmar.
5: There was always a, um, uh, an oval or a small piece of grass that we actually had our own mini World Cup. That small little oval
6: launched Tony on quite the journey. All right, so this is a test. OK, I could fail
5: this. <laughs> uh, Adelaide City, Germinal Akerin, uh, Nuck Breda, Glasgow Rangers, Middlesbrough, Cardiff City, Central Coast Mariners
6: Whew, Fair list of clubs, isn't it? Impressive Hang on a minute though, I'm skipping ahead It's time I introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Mark Bresciano Who was born in Melbourne in 1980
3: I started playing at a club at the age of five And that would have been with my older brother Not sure, maybe the my father, obviously being Italian And football being the number one sport in his country So maybe that passion came from him
6: Do you recall watching World Cups as a young bloke? Yeah which World Cups can you
3: recall? All of them. Um, <laughs> so Italy was my team, and I used to get up early in the mornings and you know watch it with my father, and my brothers, and always have a mates over watching the game together. And like growing up as a kid, I never saw a in the World Cup, so I couldn't even dream of playing in the World Cup because you know I never had that image or seen. Other Australians doing it. So that was way out of my. It wasn't even a thought, I don't think, you know, growing up as a kid.
2: John Aloisi, on the other hand. Well, Johnny could picture it. It was junior school. It was very early on. It might have even been year three. We had to write um, down um, what we wanted to be when we get older, and and uh, and put it in a vault, and they buried it. And I'd oh, the time capsule. Yeah, time capsule. Yeah. So I'd love to know where that is. But I, um, I actually remember writing that I'm going to be a professional soccer player, and huh. uh, and then year five I got uh, that probably arrogant about it that I thought. That's it, that's my life. That I, at the end of the, the school year, I signed a, a paper and gave it to the teacher. And I said, Keep this because one day it will be uh, worth a bit of money.
6: <laughs> in grade five, you're dishing out autographs, Johnny. Yeah.
2: John, Mark, and Tony,
6: they all had brothers. And looking back now, you'd presume that they were standout juniors, best in the team, best in their club, that sort of thing. Turns out, though, the boys weren't even the best in their respective families. Some guys are standouts at junior level. Were you a standout or not? Don't be modest if you were.
3: No, I won't be modest like this. No, you wouldn't have picked me to have any football career. Like I think even just between us three, because I had two brothers... I probably had the least um, ability at, at a younger age. My brother was more of a
2: natural, uh, yeah, um, player. And, and and with most sports, my brother was pretty. He, as a cricketer, he was a better batter. He could uh, he could really smash a ball. I I had to really work um, on everything that I did. You know, with with sport, um, and and it, probably that drove me more because I knew I had to work hard. It's interesting, really, isn't it? And for anyone
6: young listening at this point, it's amazing how many top level athletes. Cite hard work rather than ability as their reason for excelling. Anyway, I digress. Back to it. Growing up, the boys, especially John, were learning some pretty harsh lessons, lessons that would hold enormous ramifications for the game in Australia. You're going to shake your head at this
2: one. Were you ever involved in penalty shootouts as a young kid? Yeah, I was. Uh, it was. I was uh, fourteen. Um, involved in the under seventeen cup game with Adelaide City. Yep. So a lot of the boys were older than me, and um, but uh, you know I still was friends with them because I. Played with them the whole year, and uh, we made the quarterfinals. Uh, it was penalty shootout, and I was taking the fifth penalty, and uh, I remember it that well because huh. from the halfway line to the penalty spot, I was shaking, my legs, I felt felt like jelly. Uh, but it was a penalty to stay in, um, and not to to actually win it. And uh, and I remember putting the ball down, going back to the 18 yard box, lining up, and, and I had my sort of my run up but I hadn't practised that many penalties. And I hit the ball and and I heard a loud bang, but it was the advertising boards of the side of the goal, so I missed the goal completely. But the referee uh, whistled and said the keeper moved, and so I thought, oh, this is all right, lucky. And then I uh, had the exact same penalty again and missed it. And and why I remember it so well is because not only get knocked out, 14-year-old, but I remember walking the change room and guys that were older than me were crying and, uh, and then I heard a loud scream one of my teammates punched the wall but at that time it was like uh, it looked like it was a wooden wall veneer or whatever it was and uh, he, he smacked it but it was brick solid brick behind and smashed his wrist and um and I've never asked him how he felt when I was stepping up to take the penalty against Uruguay because he would have been shitting himself <laughs> or his wrist would have been sore. <laughs> so it's obviously a, a
6: fairly traumatic memory in my It was a traumatic it to memory.
2: The it was a traumatic memory. And if I speak to those players there, they would remember it as well because, you know, uh, when junior uh, soccer, it was, uh, you know, you're playing with your mates yeah. virtually. And uh, so uh, winning things at that level and that age is, is such a big, big thing. Um, huh. But, uh, you know, I was that devastated about it that uh, I said to myself, that's never going to happen again. That uh, If I ever get put in that position, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I score. And um, and to do that, I made sure I was prepared. And, uh, and you know, looking back now, I could have gone the other way and gone, I'm never going to take a penalty again.
6: I know, I know. The things that could have been, it makes you shake your head, doesn't it? I know exactly what you're thinking. What if a young John Aloisi had sworn off penalties? What effect would a decision like that have had on the future of Aussie football? Who knows? It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? So let's not. Being the older of our three heroes, Tony Vidmar was the first to make the leap to playing club football in Europe. And for Aussies, it was quite a leap. It was tough, it was uncompromising. And it was unfriendly.
5: Yeah, that's not easy. It's uh, It definitely um, toughens you up. Um, you know, people saying, you know, what's an Australian doing here? Uh, you know, that was uh, you know back in, uh, in 92. What's an Aussie doing here playing football? Uh,
2: where we were training, it was minus six, minus seven degrees. It was horrible.
6: John Aloisi left home to pursue his football dream at
2: 16. In Belgium, people don't care that much about you. It's you know, uh, in Australia, you're a, you're a big fish in a small pond. Mm. There, you're just another player, and um, and if you don't do well, they they don't even think twice of getting rid of you. So it's it's you 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 know that you have to look after yourself. There's no one that's going to help you, and you have got no one to turn to. It was hard. What was hard about it? uh, The language first. Um, The culture was completely different to what I was used to. Had no family, really had no friends. Had to look after yourself. Had to look after myself. Um, At first, they they were, you know, supplying, you know, dinners, and I could go to a restaurant and eat and... um, and then, you know, the the longer it went on, then I had to start cooking for myself. What were you uh, like in that area? Nah, terrible. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you have to
3: go-to meal
2: or not? Oh, yeah, pasta. <laughs>
6: <laughs> so Blow me down, Johnny. Surprise, surprise. It's only going to be pasta or cornflakes, oh, one.
2: yeah. Oh well, the cornflakes one was a, an episode because the, the, the first uh, breakfast I had, I had cornflakes and I went to the, the supermarket to go get uh, sugar, but it was all in French. And yeah. I thought, like this looks like sugar. Brought it home, put it on the the cornflakes, it was salt.
6: <laughs> Man of the world! Man of the
2: world! So that's how it was back then. It was, it was not, you know, I, I look back and I don't know if I could do that all again.
3: Well, my dream was just to play in the city. A, yeah. you know, growing up as a kid, watching the games, getting up early, watching the Italian national team. And, I don't know, something probably just hit me and, you know, that was my dream and i done everything I could to, to get to it.
6: Mark's dream of playing in the Italian Professional League, the Serie A, came true for him as a 19-year-old, but his dreams and actual reality were two very different things. Mate,
3: they don't make it easy for you, going over there for the first time, um, especially being Australian, going over there and trying to take a local's position in the team. So, you know, you, got, you had a lot of battles and players, I'm saying, wasn't make, they weren't making that easy for you.
6: There's a story goes around about you that you weren't able to change. Was that true? You couldn't change with the actual Correct. Italian players? Can you tell me that, about
3: that? What it was, is because I went over there, and I was youngish, so with the change room, they obviously had their first team change room where all the first team players and the experienced players changed into, and I remember I had to change with I think he was African and probably another South American player, young boys. So there was three of us and we always had to change in a separate change rooms.
6: Did you ever think this is getting too much?
3: Oh, mate, you know how many phone calls I had? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum and saying that I wanted to come home, like actually crying and saying, you know, I don't want to... There's nothing here, like it's too hard or... I can't see, you know, anything coming out of this, so, you know, I just wanted to come home, being lonely, not having anyone, and being treated the way we were treated. So, why didn't you come home, Mark? I think it was a dream as a kid. Um... I just... I don't know. I don't really give up anything unless I give it a good crack. So, if I would have come home, I would have had regrets, and I would have known that I didn't really give everything I had, and... I would have regretted it for the rest of my life, I think.
0: 93, had to go the hard way, beat Canada on penalties.
1: Goal!
6: Brilliant. See you, Canada. Adios. Australia, Australia, Australia,
4: Australia, amigo.
6: But... Unfortunately, we're back on the Socceroos' Tile of woe because now the Socceroos, with Tony Vidmar in the side, had to beat Argentina. The winner of that tie to qualify for the 94 World Cup in the US. Argentina?
5: It was a, um, a, a fantastic uh, experience again. Full house um, you know, against uh, World Cup champions Argentina who uh, didn't have a bad player in their, uh, in their team. Here
3: comes Maradona.
5: There.
6: Yeah, they had Maradona, one of the greatest of all time. Here
3: comes a dangerous looking cross.
6: A moment that put the Socceroos down one-nil at home.
5: Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, you can just, yeah, it's it's probably a, something that uh, you'd uh, never forget. On the same uh, same field of Maradona and uh, some of the things that uh, he did.
3: Slater inside for Sillage. He's looking for the runner, and it's a good run from
6: Vidmar. Against the odds, the Aussies equalised thanks to Tony Vidmar and his brother Aurelio
5: of all people. Uh, I've set Aurelio uh, really up in the backyard a number of times that uh, it was uh, one of those that uh, happened again.
3: Can he get no inside? Aurelio the scorer.
5: Yeah, it was a, uh, a great night for the family as well, and you know, an assist and a goal score.
6: But, yeah, there's always a but in this story. The Socceroos then had the away leg in Buenos Aires.
1: La Argentina, frente a Australia, el Capitán Maradona. Falvo está en el área, este es Batistuta.
6: So, I guess you don't really need to speak Spanish to understand that lot. Maradona was a hero once again. Maestro.
3: Gracias.
6: Gracias, Diego. You just knocked the Socceroos out at the final hurdle again. In 97, less said about that, the better. The, uh, the Iran match at the MCG. 1997, Iran, the MCG. Not good. Not good at all. In fact, for mine, one of the worst nights in the history of Australian sport ever. You've been patiently listening to some of the previous disasters to before the Socceroos, while well, this one, this one is a full-scale bloody catastrophe.
1: There is one place left. It will be filled by Iran or Australia.
6: Tehran, Iran. 128,000 people in the house. This is the good part of the story.
1: The
3: chance here for Kewal,
1: a goal for Australia. A brilliant start for the Socceroos and it's Harry Kewell, the 19 year old, who has opened the scoring and the silence that 130,000 people can make is quite stunning here. Now Vicky, pulling it across!
6: And so we get to the return leg at the MCG, the winner to go to France 1998.
1: Australian football is poised to graduate to the highest strata in the
6: world game. 85,000 people in at the MCG, which at that stage was the biggest crowd to ever attend a soccer match in Australia. And by gee, they had a lot to cheer about in the first 50 minutes. Tony Vidmar was playing, John Aloisi was on the bench, and SBS Australia, and by the way, without their help, we couldn't have told this entire story, SBS... They were doing a wonderful job covering the game.
1: Vidmar will get there first. Supporting quickly is Lazaridis. Vidmar on his own.
2: I remember you know, being on the bench and thinking, oh, we're going to go to the World Cup. This How good's this? And I'm pretty sure quite a few other players out on the pitch felt the same.
1: Little ball to the back post. Cures there. Back across.
2: With the serial pest coming on the pitch oh, and Peter Hall yeah and jumping on the on the goal and ripping down the net and now I don't know and you can't blame an individual but that did break up that that game and um, and after that we weren't the same
1: minor altercation from a spectator and the Iranian goal he did a bit of damage to the netting on the goal there and before the securities grabbed him and some damage of their own on the intruder. This is good for Australia because it gives them time to for it all to sink in.
6: In fact, it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. A five-minute delay to get rid of the intruder and fix the net.
5: But then, even even uh, players amongst that uh, who were on the field were already thinking about um, about France, um, and that was a distraction where we lost our focus and and. We probably got what we deserved in that last 10 minutes. It's easy.
1: Given a little bit too much room and time to turn. Ali Daei go through danger here. run forward again. Two lunging, saving tackles. So They've lost the ball. Bosman is out of his goal. They say, Paul, the most dangerous score to lead by is 2-0 because uh, you appear to have the match wrapped up. The other team get one back, even though it hasn't been deserved on tonight's uh, general play. And suddenly the complexion of the game changes. Let's hope it doesn't, but this is the best period for Iran in the match. Ali danger for Australia here. The flag's down. It's
3: an equaliser for- Disaster for Australia. That is how quickly a football
1: match can change. The referee looking at his watch again. The match is over. Heartbreak for Australian soccer. They have been beaten here at the MCG by the away goals rule. The cruelest of fates for the Socceroos
5: the saddest of moments oh it was um, there there were again there were a few people uh, upset probably even more so players who weren't uh, who weren't on the field or who uh, weren't in the squad um, and it was just complete silence and just you, you, I think you just wanted to rewind 90 minutes and, and, and start the game again. Um, complete, no one no one was talking, there was no, as I said, you only could hear from a few disappointed people that were uh, uh, crying, upset, um, and just probably realised that, you know, we just stuffed up on that, on that. And you can't take it back, what's happened has happened, um, and that's probably going to hurt for a very, very long time.
2: Take us into the rooms.
5: Yeah, oh,
2: I can remember that there was a player in there that was, um, that was sobbing that bad, that it was, it was like someone had died. The late, great Johnny Warren,
6: a champion for the round ball game when it desperately needed a champion in Australia. Johnny
1: summed up the devastation
6: with shattered poignance on SBS. We're all stunned,
1: I'm sure the viewers are too. I mean, it is just so cruel and so unfair uh, particularly to the boys, but all those people involved and have fought so long to establish our game uh, in this country and to see an Australian crowd tonight, appreciate what our game's about and, uh, and then to miss out. Is, it's just so sad. I, and, uh, for everyone in australian football not just the boys especially them i know but everyone associated with the game you know the mr and mrs bosnich has taken their kids to to the football the, the, all the things that go into it all those clubs that have been so maligned that we, uh, because of their ethnic backgrounds been made that these are their players and are there tonight, have suffered so much and been discriminated against and still the game goes on this opportunity which we should have was ours and uh, what, what can you say? I mean, it's just, it's just so sad for everyone. It's sad for Australia. It's sad for Australian sport. But it's even sadder for those people who, who share our passion for the world.
6: By 2001, John, Mark and Tony were now all in the Socceroos setup. up Beautiful. Once again, it came down to a sudden death two-legged playoff. This time, versus Uruguay. The first leg of the tie was played in front of 85,000 people at the Melbourne Cricket Ground and broadcast on Channel 7.
1: Musket, a Melbourne boy focused concentrating
6: scoring with a 1-0 lead, the Socceroos headed to Montevideo. Now you've got to understand, this was a talented, hardened group. Like Mark Bresciano, who was playing for Parma in Serie A at the time, these blokes were used to the hard edge
3: of the professional game. There's weeks you lose, and mate, I'm telling you, you wouldn't even even want to go out of your house and go and have a, a meal at a restaurant. They're just so fanatical, and I guess it's like a religion to them. Week in, week out, you have a good win, you walk down the street, you're a god. The next week you lose... They want to kill you.
6: But nothing, and I mean nothing, they'd experienced so far in their careers could have prepared them for what awaited in Uruguay. It was just...
3: It was, always, it was scary. Like, you know, we are just coming off the plane for the first time, landing in of a day, and just having that experience at the airport of trying to hold us up as much as they could at the airport, the bags, the luggage, the boots, just trying to find every excuse just to stuff up our routine, walking out of the airport, getting spat on, having all their fans waiting for us there, booing us, spitting on us, going onto the bus, and just, you know, them making noises while we're trying to sleep.
2: I ended up playing with two Uruguayans in, uh, at Osasuna, and they told me that they did that. They they paid homeless people to come and abuse <laughs> abuse us, and so that's... Um, put you on your heels? It did put us. It did put us on our heels. We, we were...
6: Bit. Well what's going on here? The game, once again, did not go as planned. Silver on Murphy. <clears throat> That's how Channel 7 Australia called the first Uruguayan goal. This is how the local broadcaster called.
1: Darío Silva corre
6: this is how they called the second Uruguayan goal. El centro And now, the
3: third.
6: Yeah, we get the drift. Once again, the Socceroos had fallen just
3: short. What I've personally done, which is probably I haven't told anyone, is I kept one of the match balls. Why? Because I wanted to remember that feeling and I didn't want to feel that feeling four years down the track. So, I kept that match ball and I just placed it in my room for me just to remember what I went through and what I don't want to go through again.
6: That's the end of part one of The Moment featuring the Socceroos. Now, admittedly, it's been a pretty tough story so far, but don't worry, things are about to get better when you join us for part two.